to PLV Radio Network, and you are you have Sarah with Positive Living Vibrations here today, and I'm going to be interviewing Annette Lebox. Annette was born in England in 1943 during the Second World War. Her father, a Canadian soldier, was killed on D-Day at Juno Beach. After the war, her mother, a British war bride, brought her one-year-old Annette to Canada by ship, landing at the old Halifax Pier 41. Annette was raised in Ontario, but during her 20s lived in Britain, Ireland and Spain before moving to her present home in British Columbia. Through the 60s, she worked as a nurse's aide, store clerk, bartender, bunny at a copycat playboy club. We'll learn more about that before becoming an elementary school teacher. In 1994, she took a position as a faculty association at the Simon Fraser University, where she began narrator research under the mentorship of Dr. Ted Aoki. It was through this that she developed an interest in writing. And soon after earning a fine arts in writing and creative writing from the University of British Columbia, she published her first book, Mrs. Rafferty's Rainbow Socks. Many of Annette's books are inspired by nature, and she has to date written six books, which we will talk about today, and we will discuss them and what brought them about. But she has an, something that is really you could call her obsession, and that is cranes, the beautiful, beautiful creatures, creatures cranes. And this, after she retired, took her over to China. She went there to look at the cranes, to discover more about them. But it actually led her in another direction altogether. And it led to writing a book that is factual with a fictional character and something that is quite a hot topic coming out of China today. So without any further ado, let us bring on Annette and discover this writing and how it came about and why children's books. So hello, Annette. How are you today? I'm just fine, Sarah. How I'm are you? I'm doing great. Now, children's books, I know, are very, very dear to people's hearts because it's just, you're talking a different language altogether and, you, you know, you're reaching that wonderful imagination of a child that can take a story and, and just make it something so adventurous. Why did you decide to go into children's books? Well, as a teacher, a former teacher, uh, I've always worked with children and I really enjoy especially the innocence of children. I often, the grade I liked teaching best was grade one, when children seemed so open and enthusiastic and innocent and eager to learn. And I've always wanted to make a difference in the world, and especially in the environment. Um, As a nature lover, I wanted to teach children that without being connected with nature, we really lose touch as in part of ourselves. So having a message to children was really important to me, especially when some of the sacred places in my own backyard were under threat. And so I almost used um, my writing as a kind of sword, the pen as a sword, to, to basically educate children uh, because they are the future. So if children grow up being close to nature and knowing something about nature and being enthusiastic about nature and the creatures of nature, then they'll be more interested in making a difference and trying to protect nature. So that was one thing that I really, why I write for children. The other thing is that I, I really try to be a good friend. And my first book, Miss Rafferty's Rainbow Socks, 
was about friendship and especially about friendship between generations. So many of my books actually deal with friendships between young people and older people as well and passing the wisdom of elders onto young children. So that's one of the reasons why I, I chose writing for children. But I don't only write right. for children. I, I, I also write poetry and short stories for adults as well. Well, getting back to the children's books mm-hmm. right now, I mean, children learn through mm-hmm. imagination. They learn through storytelling. Um, you know, I think if you put a kid in a classroom and you're going through kind of the manual books and then you sit them down and read a story, that story will stay with them. And they learn the lessons of life through those stories and they learn to relate to them. And they become the reading and in their own minds and imaginations participate and become the hero or become whatever character they feel um, attracted to. So storytelling for children, I think, is for everybody. I mean, as adults, we love storytelling as well. But for children, I think is a wonderful way to educate. So you can see how that came in hand in hand. Um, nature as well. And I love the fact that you also have taught them about elders. Um, you know, we are in a society where older people are kind of mm, got to a point of discarded. You know, you've had your day, you may go now. Yes. Um, instead of understanding the accumulative wisdom that only comes through time, through experience in life. So to have a book where it teaches them to embrace the wisdom of the elders um, in respect and open up to that knowledge, I think is a fabulous gift. In what particular book did you bring that about? Well, in Miss Rafferty's Rainbow Socks, that's a story between a, a, a young girl and and a not a, it was based the character was based on my grandmother. But rather than calling her grandmother, I had this Miss Rafferty being an older neighbor, mm-hmm. and uh, so that was and they have a pair of magical socks. So I put a magical element in that story too. And then in uh, Wild Bob Tea, that was, I wrote that when I was in uh, the throes of spending three years trying to set aside a conservation area, Blaney Bog. And uh, so I, I, rather than just writing about the bog itself, I wrote about the bog as a metaphor. And it starts, a bog starts as a marsh. And then as it gets older and older and older, uh, and then the water table changes, it becomes a bog. And then I have the story of a grandfather and a young boy who go out walking in the bog. And when they go out walking in the bog, they pick wild bog tea, which is actually Labrador tea. It's a medicinal tea. And then they come home and they they make the tea and they drink the tea. But when they're in the bog, they watch the cranes, they dance with the cranes, and that's part of it. They watch the birds, uh, the, the eagles, the, the owls, the coyotes, and so on. And then as the boy grows older and the bog becomes overgrown, then the, the father, the, the, the actual the young man is, then goes off to the city, and he stays there for several years. It's very told very subtly in the story, but you can see in the illustrations. And he comes back, and he asks the grandfather to go walking in the bog with him, and the grandfather can can no longer walk in the bog. He's too old. If you want to yeah. cry, this is the <laughs> thing. You want to cry. And so 
the young man goes into the bog alone and he dances with the cranes alone and he picks the wild bog tea and he comes back and he serves his grandfather wild bog tea and eventually the grandfather dies although I don't say that but it's no longer able to go there and then again you know he says his grandfather is still there in you know in the in the wild bog tea in the bog and so on so it's the story of birth because as part of the story, the the young man actually was originally a, a baby, and the grandfather was holding him. So it's the whole, it's the aging of the bog as a metaphor, and it's also the aging of the birth of the young boy, and then uh, the death of the grandfather, and so on. So in that story, it was the same thing. In Circle of Cranes, there are three aunties, uh, their characters, to a young 13, 13-year-old girl called Su Yin. And there's great friendship there. And then uh, friendship, too, between Su Yin, the main character of Circle of Cranes, and uh, Mrs. Tang, who's kind of, who's her mentor. She's not old. She's middle-aged. But, again, it's the, the friendship between young and old. So yes, it seems to be a theme with you. Um, a theme, yes. a theme. Of but mine. I mean, getting yeah. back to the bog. Yeah. I mean, it's a, again, you know, kids today are grown up with high rises and concrete jungles, and you know, if there's blank land, you can build on it. You know, put a mall, put up a townhouse complex, put up apartments, and they forget that you know nature has to have its balance. It's here for a reason, and there seems to be more and more ailments today because we seem to be not paying attention to the cures, um, to the things that are in the bog simply as, you know, like that tea that is something that gives us health. And I think it's a great lesson to teach children that to respect nature, to respect what nature can do, do do for us, but also our responsibility in taking care of nature. And, you know, you had your young man go off to the city and live his youth, um, but then come back mm-hmm. full circle to understanding what that nature means, um, which is really, mm-hmm. really beautiful. And because, you know, you may be young now, but, you know, if you're lucky, you'll get old. And, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, you will hope that there is somebody young there keeping that um, that that gift of life which is nature alive so i love the references also between the young and the old because yes the old do teach the young we are there as mentors as guiders as storytellers and uh, that is the gift of getting older isn't it which is makes it wonderful absolutely absolutely and then again it's it's about the whole life cycle mm-hmm. from birth to death and then salmon creek uh, that book actually won the BC Book Prize, and th- that that book was a it was a picture book, an illustrated picture book, but it care it was a poetic one, so that made it quite different from you know most of the books about salmon are kind of nonfiction, mm-hmm. and they talk about the eggs and, and so on, and then the adult, and then the adult goes back to the birth stream and so on, but but so it's a life cycle, but it was done in a poetic mm-hmm. way. And again, the same thing, you know, that the idea of the salmon swimming right back to its birth stream to lay eggs and and then die. So when I was a teacher, one of the things that I loved to do with my students uh, was to teach them about natural history and to teach them the names of the plants. And so by the end, I remember I taught kindergarten for a few years in grade one and 
uh, I was teaching at Harry Hoagie Elementary, and there was a forest right next to the school mm-hmm. called Balabanian Woods. And I, I, and I took them into the forest, and by the end of, from spring until the end of June, would, the children would take their parents out, and they would have a list of about 30 natural uh, plants and um, wildlife plants, and they would show the parents which were the plants, and they'd check them off, and they could, they could identify 30 plants. And that, and that was all about not just memorization, but it was learning to observe mm-hmm. the veins and the shape of the leaves and what it felt like, whether, you know, whether when it felt sort of uh, fussy on the bottom of the leaf and so on, the underneath of the leaf. And the parents didn't yeah. know any of those Isn't things. Isn't it wonderful when the child and the, the parents, parents were yeah. just, <laughs> it's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. And one day I want to write a book about, you know, a sort of how-to book, natural history mm-hmm. for young young children, but um, it's just getting around to doing that. I was that. thinking when you were telling me about that, you know, the school next to the thing, there's a little bit of a Hagrid in you. For Harry Potter, You're right? Oh, right! Oh, I've been quite a while. Right. Since and I'm read. sure you have got any dragons hidden yeah. away somewhere. Yeah, but, yeah. I mean, you know, that's For the reason sure. why people love Hagrid so much from the Harry Potter series is because you know he was somebody that um, wasn't perceived to be bright, but you know was so knowing of nature and the little things in nature. It's uh, very often became the survival trait, or certainly the appreciation of what is out there. So um, I think that, you know, again, teaching today in the, in the school system is, you know, so heavily on the academic that they forget the balance of teaching the appreciation of life, all life, all living life. And it's something, mm-hmm. yes, know, the, parents are working. Yeah. The curriculum seems, the curriculum seems to have gotten mm-hmm. so inflated that I think it's trying to push yes. all these facts into children's heads. And, uh, yeah. Not a very good balance. It's, just having and you know something mm-hmm. even as parents you know parents are working or they've got demands or they've got several kids and they're in this sports uh, thing or in dance or in this or in that and they forget that how much they can all learn are just simply going on a nature walk and just uh, even sitting and being still and watching what life has to bring um in a stillness um, being observant of what's around you you know tuning into the universe you know, it really is something that we can learn a great deal from, and we need to be a little more patient with life, I think. Mm-hmm, I agree. One of my favorite books in, uh, along that subject is called Last Child in the Woods, and the subtitle is uh, Saving Our Children from Nature Deficit <laughs> like Disorder by <laughs> Richard Louvre. Yeah, and and the whole premise is that today... Parents are so afraid to send their children outside yes. to play. Uh, so they're very fearful that they're going to be carried off or, or you know, have an accident or fall out of a tree or something. And so they spend a lot of time on computers and watching TV and with technology and they're inside and they've lost touch with nature. And, and this particular writer has said that this uh, uh, ADHD is often caused by uh, lack of touch with nature. And when children get back to spending more time in nature, that's, yeah, it's very it common. I mean, when we simply, I've got a great border collie and I love going for a walk. 
And I love walking along and just hearing the rustles of the trees. It's like they're communicating with you, the gentle, you know, kiss of the breeze against your cheek, um, you know, watching things grow, how they change so rapidly. And just, you know, the little things that you see darting amongst the the forest. I mean, it's it's the world that was here long before us or any of our technology or anything that we deem as the most important thing today. And again, if we do not teach our mm-hmm. children to be respectful of the earth and understand its um, its gifts to us, its healing co- uh, commodities to us, we are going to certainly have a world that will be, you know, very, very, uh, very much in dire straits. So it's something that we need to teach the parents to do yeah. with their kids. That's right. So let's go a little bit now to another story that I found very fascinating when talking to you is that um, you um, decided to retire. And instead of like just kind of writing a few kids books or going on holidays or taking up golf like a few people do, you decided to go over to China to a, a very obscure province because they had beautiful cranes over there. But instead, it, it led you into a totally different direction in life. So how about you tell us a little bit about that story? Sure. Well, first of all, um, I did have a reason for going over there. I had decided that I wanted to write another book about cranes. And so I, but I wanted it to be different. So I knew that China was a country that, where the people really revered cranes. So I got on my computer and I googled cranes in China and what came up was Chow Hai, Chow Hai Lake, where there are thousands of birds and there's a flock of 800 black neck cranes. And what also interested me were the people there, the Miao people. They believed that cranes were supernatural beings that carried the souls of their ancestors or right away to yes. a writer. That's just gold. So I had, I had already decided that I wanted to write a novel. And I want, and I, before that, I was very fascinated by the idea of transformation and women and into birds. And this is across many, many cultures. So there was the idea of birds and transformation, and that would be a magical element, and then the cranes, and then China. So I was already into probably writing about, I spent about a year trying to get an idea of what I was going to write and how. And just before that, uh, it was in 1999 and 2000, there was a series of migrant ships uh, that were shipwrecked off the coast of Queen Charlotte Islands. And, um, and I became fascinated by human smuggling. So I started to write the novel, and then I thought, how could I write a novel where the main character is Chinese, mm-hmm. and I've never been to China? So I spent, this was a year before I retired, and I spent a year, my poor husband, watching Chinese movies, eating Chinese food, reading Chinese literature, the translation Chinese literature, um, and so on, and then when I retired... Uh, from teaching, I I really didn't like the feeling. Mm-hmm. People were saying, well, congratulations that you're retired. And, and because I was a teacher, 
they thought that that was it. I was retiring. Mm-hmm. They didn't see writing as a job. I think they saw it, even though I'd had published books, yeah. they saw it as a, as just a hobby. And I was feeling, I started to feel for the first time in my life, mm-hmm. I started to feel like an older woman. So I thought, I have to do something really um, to challenge myself. And when I was in my 20s, I, I traveled I spent a year in Spain. I spent a year, uh, other months in, in Europe and so on. And I thought, I am, I am going to challenge myself. I'm going to have an adventure. So I'm going to China. So I called the travel agency and so on. And, um, I didn't, I tried to get a translator. And basically, the only way I could get a translator to go to this very remote place was if I had somebody to nanny me right for, through the whole journey. And I didn't want that because I knew if I had somebody to accompany me that I would be treated like a yeah. tourist, I would be shown only certain things, and I didn't want that kind of trip. But I, because I had worked in Maple Ridge um, trying to save the Blaney Bog and Cod wetlands, which was the uh, nesting place of the Santo Cranes. I'd also had close contact with the International Crane Foundation. So they arranged for me to meet some government officials in Waningtown, which is the, the nearest city closest to this tiny little village, which was which is probably... In hindsight now, it's a good thing I did that because I never would have, they never would have allowed me to, to be into this, this small village. And so when I got to Wainingtown, which was just an adventure in itself, I mean, nobody spoke English. Like in, in Guizhou, that's the least visited province. It's a poor province. And just literally, uh, there were, I didn't hear anybody speaking English. So, I had a few adventures there, but finally I got to this winning town and I contacted the cadres and it was a very nice cadre who arranged in three days. He would take me to this tiny village, Chow High. And it just so happened, coincidentally, (laughs) wink, wink, that a television crew was sent as well. Mm-hmm. to film the whole thing. So I had uh, the some of the Meow people, which were the minority people, and the Han, which were the regular, you know, mainland Chinese people. The, uh, they greeted me. They greeted me with mm. uh, embroidery because the Meow, they're very mm-hmm. famous for their beautiful embroidery. So, uh, so they, then they took me to the village. And it was, the roads were rutted and muddy, and it was extremely poor. They had stone houses, but when I went into the house and I had this cadre as a translator, I asked the women what they did for pleasure, and they said, Mm -hmm. there is no pleasure, we just work. And there were no toys for the children. There wasn't a single book. There was, and then I said, I will sing a Canadian song to you. I said this through the trans- translator. If you will sing me, uh, you know, a typical song. Now, the people that I asked to sing, to exchange songs with, 
were not meow because if they're meow people, the minority people, they would have been able to sing. They're very, mm-hmm. they love singing and they're, they have beautiful voices and there is song. But they said, we don't know any songs. Only, yeah. uh, Red yeah. is Red, that traditional song during the Mao, uh, Mao's revolution. So it was so sad. Many of the children didn't have shoes. The children were seven or eight years old, were carrying babies on their back. And they were in charge of looking after the babies because the parents had to work in the fields all day. It was, I have traveled a lot and I've seen poverty, but I have never seen extreme poverty like that. And I mean, I had to leave for a little while just to have a little cry because it was so horrible. Um, So I I had a sense of the village that Suyin, my main character, came from. And the cadre that I met there uh, was very worried about me because I was a woman alone. I had this huge backpack that went mm-hmm. from my head right to my below my waist. And basically, I didn't have a word of Chinese. I just had these little tiny um, strips of paper with Chinese Mandarin on one side characters and, and then English on the other to show where the places, which places I was going to. And he said... Uh, uh, you know, I have a translator. He says, my sister is going to training. She's going to teacher's college in Guiyang, which is the capital city of Guizhou. And maybe she could help you and be your translator. Mm-hmm. And I said, great. I said, well, I will pay her way. I will pay for food and hotels and everything. And I will teach her English. Right. Because she would need improvement in English. They're always looking for improvement and so on. And she can then be my translator. And it will, it will be, we'll have an adventure together. She was 24. And so we went off for three weeks and we had an adventure together. And it was just the most fabulous, fabulous uh, adventure. And she didn't know, we went, I wanted to research the Miao minority people. And she did not know a lot of their language either because they speak another dialect. So we, we really, we had a wonderful time and, and I was totally, it, it, this culture shock was amazing. Just, just amazing. Um, I, I couldn't, there were no well, signs was, anywhere of English, you know, it, it, I mean, the food, I, I, I didn't know what I was eating. I've been married to a Chinese guy for, for over 20 years <laughs> but, and Chinese food is absolutely fantastic. So you probably actually did eat some amazing food, but you're coming from such a humble place there. Um, it would probably be very, very basic, but they're generally very, very generous. Oh, yeah. Well, we had one dinner with the cadres where it was the, the food was wonderful, but the little, yeah. when I was traveling on my own, the little hole-in-the-wall yeah. places was yeah. not, good, not good. It was very basic. I mean, imagine, imagine <laughs> so, those people in yeah. that village, though. I mean, there that you was are. Still, I mean, they've never seen, you know, a white woman before, you know, um, you know, what language is she speaking? I mean, for, you know, you will be talked no. about for years over there. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, you came to see the cranes. Oh, yeah. And of course, you know, I don't know if they know about your book, but. Um... Oh. Well, OK. Uh, the time I went, I actually. I didn't see the cranes and I knew I wasn't going to see the cranes because the cranes overwinter there. And I, I have to say, I chose to go there in the summer because I know that it was would have been really brutal. Like there isn't any no. nice right. 
cushy hotel where I'd be warm. And I just didn't want to go in the winter. I really, really don't like the cold, except for when I'm skiing or something. So I knew that I, I wouldn't be seeing the cranes. However, I, you know, I have seen the cranes here a lot. So I felt that, and I did all the research on the Balaknik crane. So I yeah. felt like I didn't need to see the cranes as much as I needed to meet the people and to yes. just get the feel of, of a different culture. So uh, I think that was the main reason I went there. So, so from this, you know, yeah, the book it was quite an adventure. <laughs> and, you know, one of the things that uh, we're hoping you're going to do for us on PLV Radio Network is have a story time at the weekends uh, where you will maybe read a chapter for us um, every week or however long it will take to read um, of your book and let people dive into this journey, which is uh, a lot based on fact, but you've taken a fictional character from this village. Can you give us a little more about this book? Because it's very different to anything else you've done. Yeah, it sure has. It sure is. It's, um, well, I think it's just, it's a story of Sue Yin. She is 13 years old and she's an orphan and she has a strange gift of, of languages. She's able to understand any language and this is where the magical element comes in. And she also has a mysterious connection to the cranes in her small Chinese village. And then a human smuggler, uh, referred to as a snakehead, <laughs> arrives in the village and, yeah, and he promises riches in America. Now the reason they call, uh, the human smugglers snakeheads is because they tell the people that when they get to America or Gold Mountain, that they will um, they will be like uh, they'll they'll be snakes in the cage, but they will suddenly come out and be big and huge and and so on. So they're they're called snakeheads. And I know I read several books about uh, about the illegal smuggling and so on. Um, then um, they persuade the villagers-elect Su Yin, the main character, who they consider lucky to go as their benefactress. But when she gets there, she's forced to work in a sweatshop in New York City's Chinatown. The Just getting there is two months on a smuggler ship where the conditions are absolutely horrible. Um, in order to research the smuggler ship, it's funny, you know, when you're doing a, when you're involved in a project like this, sometimes weird things happen. Like, I happened to be talking to a friend about this, about the human smuggling, and this friend said, well, I know, uh, I used to work with a person who worked on immigration, and this immigration officer was the first officer to meet the first migrant ship Excellent. on the Queen Charlotte Islands. And I can give you her number. So I actually phoned this immigration officer's number and we talked and it turns out that she was obsessed with mm -hmm. human uh, smuggling as I was and she had three binders full of newspaper pictures and articles about the human smuggling and Excellent. what was the migrant ships. And she had done all my research for me and she offered to send them to me. So uh, then I interviewed her as well, and also I sent her that portion of the novel that takes place in the smuggler ship, 
and she bet, you know, she right. basically vetted it and said, yes, this is, this is not exaggerated. You know, rats crawling everywhere and, and, uh, a pail basically and the smell and, and starving, you know, not enough food, not enough water. It was really awful. So she gets to, Suyin gets to the sweatshop in New York City's China, China, Chinatown and when things just seem horrible, the cranes arrive and they reveal that she is no ordinary girl. And in fact, she's the key to the survival of an ancient crane sisterhood. So mm-hmm. I wanted to, to be part fable, mm-hmm. part true life. I guess it's called magic realism. But all the conditions that I describe in this story of the human smuggling, the child labor, the intimidation tactics of the gangsters, the horrible factory bosses and how they abuse their workers. Uh, it's all based on fact. And there's a strike also in the story, which is also based on fact. So it's kind of, it's kind of ironical that because this was such a long journey for Su Yin to go from China to, you know, the smuggler ship, mm-hmm. to New York. And it seemed like my journey was the same because I traveled to China. And then I contacted um, Peter Kwong, who has written, who, who's written several books on illegal migration and labor practices in New York City sweatshops. And I emailed him and I asked him if he would meet me and take me through a sweatshop nice. or show me where they were. And I thought, oh, he'll never answer. But he did. So I went to New York City. I met him. Uh, he didn't take me into the sweatshops, but he pointed out where they were. And uh, and he waited on the street. I, I told both because my husband came along as well. And I said, you two just wait on the street because I don't think they'll let you in. Mm-hmm. But a woman alone, a short woman, <laughs> older woman, you know, I look, I, I don't look very scary, so maybe I'll have a chance to, maybe they'll let me in. So I went up to this fifth floor on East Broadway, where Peter Kwong had told me where it was, and I knocked on the store, and the door was about, mm. I would say, four inches thick. It had all kinds of locks <laughs> on it, and <laughs> had a peephole. It was like something out of a novel. <laughs> and I, and so I'm knocking, yeah, I'm knocking on the door, to try to get in, and I'm in English saying, hello, hello, can you let me in, can you let me in, you know, just being really, you know, silly. And uh, after about four minutes, the door opens, and this young Chinese teenager opens the door, and she let me in. I couldn't believe it, so I went in there, I had my camera, and I and I drew pictures, because they couldn't speak English, and there was only five of the was in there, uh, and Peter Kwong had told me that it was November when I went, and so that was it was just before Christmas, just before the Christmas or after the Christmas rush to get everything ready for Christmas, that it was a slow time. So a lot of the workers weren't in the sweatshops, not all of them anyway. So there were only five in there, and I walked in, and some of the workers looked like they were very disapproving and looked a little scared. Um, and I drew the pictures of the book and everything, and then I asked through my just uh, motions and pictures if I could take photographs. 
So the young girl held up the garments for me. The one woman, I took mm-hmm. a photograph of her with a mask over her, her nose because the chemicals really cause rashes and so on. And, and I took all kinds of photographs of the shop so I could make sure that was correct when I described the shop in the novel. And then I left. And Peter could not believe that I'd actually gotten exactly. in because normally they don't, you know, they don't let strangers in. But then he said, he pointed to this other one, this other sweatshop, and he took off. And he, I, you could tell my husband mm-hmm. figured that he didn't, felt a little nervous about, you know, me doing that. So I went to the other, I climbed the stairs. I asked Michael to, my husband, to wait downstairs. And it was on the sixth floor. And also it was on Sunday. Yep. So on Sunday, the, these garment factories are not supposed to be open. Well, of course, they were. So I couldn't believe the door wasn't locked. So I opened the door, and there's, this one is a bigger garment factory. There's about 50 workers in there. And I opened the door, and everybody just kind of looks at me. They don't know who I am or why I'm there. And you can tell they're like a puzzled look on their face. And there's two men, and then the rest are all women on the machines. And they say something to me, shout something at me, and I take several pictures. And one of them is yelling at me and starts chasing me out. And I run down the stairs, and I'm going, my God, I'm telling And we go into an alley, took into an alley. I can actually see this into a movie there. So that was Everybody would say to you, don't go down the alley. Don't you know what happens in the alleys? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And then I, and then as I was, you know, when you take a long time to write a novel, you kind of get into different uh, things. Things happen. Other serendipitous things happen. Like I started doing research on embroidery because the Meow people are uh, embroideresses, and they they are just incredible embroideresses. And then I find out that they actually put the secrets. The male people will embroider their history on their clothing. I thought that was absolutely fantastic and fantastical and I don't know, it just something about it. I thought I have to put that in my novel. So then I, I have a whole binder of embroidery techniques because in the novel, the, this ancient crane women clan, there are 15 species of cranes. So the Crane Women clan is a global clan. So they would have different embroidery techniques according to where on earth, what country, and what place they learn to embroider. So next thing you know, I am learning all of these, not how to do it, but I am learning about the different embroidery techniques and the symbols. And so through the embroidery, I figured that she would then learn by when she learns to embroider my character, she will learn about the mystery of her mother's disappearance. Then I find out I'm reading a paper one time, I think it was the Vancouver Sun, and there was a whole one-page article on Nushu, which is a secret women's writing which is invent, was invented by a small group of women in China thousands of years ago. And it was only about a decade ago that it was discovered. And so then I ended up with 
embroidering the new shoe as well because again that was a secret women's language so it's very much uh it, it's very much about women's secrets and women's powder power because the reason the women learned or invented their own language because in china yes. thousands of years ago women and over hundreds of years ago even mm-hmm. women weren't allowed to read and write that was just the purview of men and so women then invented their own writing, their own secret writing, and they embroidered it on fans and in, in their, in their three-day journals. And again, I became fasc- fascinated about Nushu as well. In fact, Nushu actually, some of the Nushu have cranes on them as well. Book, so there seem to be all of these interesting connections. You know, understanding the smuggling and basically the slavery, the village, you went there to look at cranes and then, you know, more of everything there that comes about. I mean, everything just became a great big huge embroidery for you. That's right. But you know, the problem with huge embroidery, you have to learn how to connect all the threads. And that was so difficult because I knew where the novel was going. I knew how it was going to end, but I had to create this whole other world and this whole other system. And I had to figure out how to connect all the threads Mm -hmm. so that it made sense and that it would be like natural. Probably oh, the most yeah, satisfactory, that's, that's satisfactory why, you know? thing you've and ever done. Because extreme, you really it went was on the hardest journey, thing I've ever had to write. So I can imagine that it's not just a, a book that you, yeah, I, you know, I did this book. It's great. I, I did. did the research that you have kind yes, of I uh, did. dived into a history now and understood it um, in, in its entwinement and unraveled it into a beautiful story, as you say, all fact-based. But basically, you've just taken a fictional character to be the spokesperson of this history. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think, I don't know if I would ever Mm -hmm. tackle magic realism again, because... Because magic realism, you have the magic, yes. so so you have to make that believable, but you also can't veer from the facts. Because if you veer from the facts, then your credibility, in a sense, is is not good. So I wanted to stick to all the facts. So, so I know that some of yeah. my readers, it they couldn't believe that it wasn't that this was contemporary. They thought that this happened a long time ago. Yes, this can't be uh, Even on. though I gave hints at the beginning that it was contemporary, they just thought, "Oh my goodness, how could how could this be going on?" In fact, my editor in in mm-hmm. New York, she said that she was shocked yeah. that and only actually, a few um, streets ago, over you know, from um, where their office was a, that this um, was going a, on. Know, adventure novelist, I kind of call him the James Bond of the sea. And he always starts off with a factual thing happening, something that happened in history, and then it marries into the story, um, you know, on the adventures that they go on. And one of the books that he wrote on was about, um, you know, smuggling Chinese people from, uh, you know, outside provinces into a new world, you know, um, America, which he put in in his book, and then uh, the old people will be killed off, <coughs> the girls into sexual slavery or sweatshops, and the men used for, you know, um, 
the drug cartel or whatever. And my husband, my ex-husband is Chinese, and I said to him about this book, and he said, no, that would never, never be allowed to happen. Nothing like that goes on. And literally that summer, two or three months after I'd read this book, here in Vancouver, we had a whole load of ships come in. You know, filled to the brink with uh, people that have been smuggled over with promise of a new world. And uh, some of them had just been put into ordinary containers with holes drilled yeah. in at the top so they could breathe. You know, no sanitary, hardly any food, found dead because of the exposure. And uh, it became, if you remember, it became quite an enormous case of like, what do we do with these people? But they had paid mm-hmm. to have this new world. And it's exactly what had happened to them. And, yeah. uh, and it's only because they, I think, one of the ships was sinking, if you remember, um, and, they, and had to get them off there. So for as much as people think, oh, oh no, this doesn't go on in today's world, yeah. it most certainly does, is that with so much else going on in the world, we don't pay attention to it. And, you know, as the publisher found out, you know, just a block or two down the road is this slavery going on. And it, and you know, the garments that you're picking up on the corner road and getting at discount with fake labels on it is probably coming from that. That's right. Shop. That's right. And and my character is has paid 50,000 US dollars mm-hmm. to come over on that smuggling ship. And that's that was the going rate at the time I was writing the book too. Um I'm not sure what the going rate yes. is right now, but I'm sure it doesn't prices usually don't mm-hmm. go down. Especially but it's just impossible for them to pay it off. It like would take most of their life to pay it off. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. And, and also, there's all sort of ways in which the factory bosses yeah. can cheat them. They say, we'll pay you such and such a wage, and then they have to pay for rent and food. They get them their so-called yeah. safe houses and so on, and and they charge them so much for everything. And then there's also the, the gangs as well. Um, and if they, yes. if they complain... Then they're threatened by the uh, INS, so the immigration, that they'll be deported. And what actually surprised me more than anything was that Peter Kwong said mm-hmm. that there are hardly anybody is deported, except for maybe the, a high-profile case, you know, where there's a ship that uh, I think Lewis Golden Venture quite a few years ago uh, was shipwrecked. Um, it was in the states. And, of course, they ended up uh, imprisoning a lot of those migrants. And I think they were eventually deported. But for the most part, the authorities turn a blind eye because it's a multi-million dollar industry, garment industry. Uh, Oh, I I shouldn't tell you about my... um, I, I also, when I was doing the interviewing and research on human smuggling, I did some detective work. And I actually found, through this detective work, um, a foster parent for two of the young children that were shipwrecked off the Queen Charlotte Islands. It was a a seven-year-old girl and a nine-year-old boy. And uh, I asked to meet her. And so we met at Tim Hortons here one night, and I interviewed her. And she told me this absolutely heartbreaking story about fostering these two children. They weren't brother and sister. They uh, they were 
they said that um, they had their parents. They said that one of the other women were was their parent, was their mom. And they she took them to mm-hmm. visit this woman yeah. in prison. But she said there's no way this woman was their mother. They 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 were told what to say and they lied about it. And so she figures they were just sent over on their own. Mm-hmm. Their their family sent them. And the little girl would have worked in a garment factory and the boy would have worked as a waiter in a Chinese restaurant. Mm-hmm. And so after a year, the uh a so called uncle, they call him an uncle, uh started to phone them. And one night after having them for a year and, and actually growing to love them, she woke up in the middle of the night and she had this strange feeling and she went to the children's bedrooms and they weren't there. She called the RCMP and the RCMP found them at the nearest Sky Train station and the snakehead, who was a human smuggler, had basically took off. So he had called them and basically he was going to take them back, he was going to take them the rest of the way to New York. So they told the, the immigration or Ministry of Children and Families told the woman that they were going to be deported in a few days. And no, they said God. that she Why, wasn't you know, to the tell the, the children. And she said she just couldn't not, she couldn't the just drive them to the, the airport. Here, you know, that way. So she, what's, pardon me? Oh yeah, that's right. That's right. So she, had told the teacher and they had a going away party for both children and they also uh she bought them toys and clothes and packed their suitcase and because of that she was fired uh, uh, she was told basically because she disobeyed um and she was she was crying she was really really upset and she said about six months later, she got a phone call from the uncle to say you know, who is, that yeah, the children you know, who's, were in who New York out for these children? and that they, they the were looking. They need somebody there to look after them. So that them was over, another say, story the that I... You know, through bureaucracy. I mean, it's, there's so much radically wrong in this world and there's so much that needs to be addressed. And the first and foremost is we look after our children. And, you know, mm-hmm. even if they're not our children, we look after the Earth's children and protect them. And that is yeah. horrible because, of course, trying to save them now. And, you know, imagine those kids have known love for a year. They've known what it's like to be a real child, go to school, have things, and then suddenly thrown into slavery like that. Just horrible. Mm-hmm. No, not at all. Well, obviously, your book is a wonderful story of, you know... Yeah, of, I mean, she was very, very upset, and I, I don't blame her. The past with the present. The horrible um, you know, And yeah. the, the misgoing, you know, the things that go on in the world, and that is still very much happening today. It's very much an educational book, um, you know, on society and what we need to do to stop it now. Um, you know, the one of the things you can do, folks, especially if you're in New York, those clothes that have been sold on the corner with uh, Louis Vuitton or anything else in them, that they're, they're fake, are probably coming from those sweatshops. So stop buying them because um, you're supporting that industry. And, uh, 
you know, people pay attention. If you know there's something going on, don't turn a blind eye. Speak out and do something about it. This is an era of consciousness, and the consciousness means that you need to step up and do something about the wrongs in the world and not just go, yes, it's sad, and not do anything. So we're going to have you um, on reading hour on our weekends on PLV Radio, um, reading this book to us, or at least some of it. Yes, yes, um, I think, yes, yes I've just for got sure. Twirly at the present moment. Uh, if we have time, Sarah, I, I'd like to talk a little bit about now, my so story so I'm yes. working on now. Um, and let people know that, um, that you're going to be reading these, this wonderful story. What is the name of the book, by the way? Annette? No, uh, okay, sorry, we're doing a bit of a problem. Um, what is the name of the book, by the way? Oh, yes, you're fading out, Sarah. Well, it's the working title is Black Dog, but I'm not sure mm-hmm. if that will be the final title because okay, publishers usually change the title, and I'm not even sure whether that's, you know, the appropriate title or not. But for now, that's the title. It's about a 15-year-old girl called Kat who runs away from an abusive home and ends up on the downtown east side where she becomes part of a street family. And then when she finds herself arrested for prostitution, her outreach worker sends her to remote, a remote area in the <laughs> Caribou, British Columbia, to live with relatives she's never met. And, um, of course, I just happen to have a cabin in the caribou. So, <laughs> so this is, uh, it may be actually an adult novel because as the uh, street kids, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. there um, are, the language is not going so to be you're, you're that, that pure. So I think it might just be, uh, for adults. When do we have that to look forward to? Yeah, yeah. Well, I I don't know because I I'm in the process of writing it and I've got three three quarters of a draft, but other than that I still have to finish the draft and then of course I have to go all the way through it again. Then I have to give it to my agent who will probably give me feedback on it and I'll have to go through it again and then he will then uh, give it to my editor and she will either yeah. um, say yay or nay yeah, and if think she says nay then like I have to my agent will send it to different publishers so it's usually quite a long process to get a novel finished and published there's a lot of levels to it and that it's something that really is an art so um, and it is a job, folks. So, you know, it's just not, it's just not necessarily recognized very much appreciatively of. Not everybody ends up like J.K. Rowling. <laughs> and, and the name of the book yeah, that's uh, right. of our Chinese girl, um, what is the name of that book that you're going to be reading for us? 
Yeah, Circle of Cranes. That's and so right. What, uh, pay attention, folks. Keep on, on, on PLV Radio. Um, she's going to be reading this it's called, coming up in the next it's month. It's called so Circle of Cranes. Um, a little bit every week um, and taking you on this adventure. I think it's one that you can sit down and, um, and listen to. Remember, you're going to be able to download this onto your, your iPad, um, your tele, your phone. Gosh, it's sounding, sounding old, aren't I? Telephone onto your cell um, from your computer. But it's something that the whole family could listen to because it's something that is educational. It's beautiful. And it's uh, certainly very, very enlightening. So <laughs> uh, keep posted um, on the site. We'll let you know when that's coming up. In the meantime, Annette, tell everybody how they can actually get hold of your books and maybe a few of your titles so that uh, people know what to look for. Sure. Uh, well, you can get any of my books on Amazon or uh, any of the on the internet and on any of those any bookstore. If they don't have it in, they can be ordered. All except for Miss Rafferty's Rainbow Socks. Um, you can't. Unfortunately, you can't get that anymore. Um, that's out of print. Um, but uh, the Princess Who Dance with Cranes. Uh, that's by Second Story Press. Miracle Willow Creek by the same press, Wild Bog Tea by Groundwood, uh, Salmon Creek, and then Circle of Cranes. And uh, Peace is an Offering. That's a new picture book coming out in 2015. And if you could give everybody your site and how uh, they can get hold of you. That won't be out till then, but the other books, you can get them from probably off the Internet or any bookstore. Uh, yeah, it's just uh, my website is www.annettlebox.com. So it's A-N-N-E-T-T-E-L-E-B-O-X. Well, this is wonderful. It's to see somebody so dedicated into writing. And, and all the you know, information kind of about the book and the background of the book and so on will be on my, my website. Coming out from all, all the life experiences being poured into your books for others to learn from. So I think that is a wonderful. And uh um, I look forward to, um, you know, your your story hour coming up because I certainly, you know, want to take this journey with you um, um, because it's something I think that really needs to be listened to. And as I said, it's a family thing from obviously probably about the ages of 12 up, um, but a really great story and adventure of kind of hope and belief as well. So. I have very much enjoyed this as well. And, uh, you know, please keep writing uh, these well, thanks are, very much very, very for very having me on. To, I really know, enjoyed uh, talking to books you. Books are not dead. They're very, very, very important to, you know, the child right up into the adult. They're what spark our imagination. They are what educators. They connect us to what's going on in the world. And it's something that we need, you know, to make more time in doing. So please keep writing your wondrous stories. So thank you very much, Annette. God bless. And uh, I look forward to your reading hour coming up probably in August. 